Uh, Last night, we talked about the theme, God is on the move, and today we're still continuing with that theme, talking about God is on the move. Last night, I was asked to talk about the theme, God is on the move, and moving His people to the nations. And then this morning, I've been asked to talk about the theme of God is on the move in moving the nations to our backyard. And so, so that is what we're going to do this morning. And, I, and I'm going to do this a little differently than what I did last night. I actually have a, a slide uh, presentation that's going to tie in with our time together. And um, there we go. I'll pull that up right there. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at two verses of Scripture this morning from this text. And uh, the past two Sundays, uh, you have been in the book of Acts. I had the, the privilege through the, through the miracle of podcasts to be able to listen to, uh, to Pastor Cody and Pastor Steve uh, preach uh, from Acts 8 and Acts 17 and, and reference passages throughout this book. And so, so you're familiar, obviously, with the context of where we come to, to Acts 17 today with Paul being at Mars Hill. He's, he's there in Athens. He, he's distressed because of the things that he sees in the city of all these altars to these different gods and goddesses. And he's invited to, to the, the, the Agora, the, the Mars Hill, the place where the Epicureans and the Stoics are there to, to hear what this seed picker, hear what this babbler is saying. And so that's when he begins to proclaim and share his message. And, and the primary reason for this passage in the book of Acts is to, to hear how the gospel gets to Athens and Paul sharing the gospel with these people. But there's something in this passage of Scripture that I think we often overlook And it is something I think is incredibly important when we think about God being on the move, when we think about God being on the move and moving the nations across the world uh, that I want us to look at this morning. And so this is where we're going to be this morning in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and and 27. This morning, uh, I am primarily speaking to those who are followers followers of Jesus. Obviously, this Mission Emphasis Weekend, that's that's what we're we're spending time thinking about, this great commission that Christ has has called us to. But I, I recognize that, that in a worship gathering like this, in a, in a, in a crowd uh, of this size, that there are people who, who, are, who are not followers of Christ, and you're interested and you're curious in finding out more about Jesus. Uh, while I'm speaking to the church this morning, uh, I definitely want you to listen, but, but here is, is the, the main message that I'm wanting you to hear, and that is this Jesus that we've been singing about. In fact, the last song talked about there's, there's no salvation found in no other name other than Jesus Christ. And so my, my hope and my desire, my prayer for you, even though I don't know you, I've been praying for you, is that you in your heart, even while I'm speaking this morning, that you would, you would turn from your sin that separates you from the holy God that created all people, and that you would confess Christ as Lord, believing that, that, that He died on a cross for your sins and God raised Him from the dead, and that the Bible says that anyone who calls out to Him in that repentance and faith will be saved. And so, so this morning, I, I hope that you will do that, even while I'm speaking. And then before you leave here, you, you will share that decision to be a follower of Christ with, with, with one of the pastors here at this church. Church, this morning, I, I want us to think about this text of Scripture. But I want to begin by talking to you about Yemen. I was uh, having a Skype call with... Uh, with a missionary who was serving in Yemen. This was about uh, two or three years ago before the situation got worse there. And uh, he and his family uh, were were living in the country, and the room in which he was uh, having this call with me was a darkened room. And and he, he was telling me, he said, J.D., he said, you know, he said, we are having a hard time in country just being able to share the gospel, or actually, excuse me, just being able to connect with our neighbors next door. 
Uh, that every day we have to change our direction. We have to go in a different path every day because we, we're being watched and, it, and it's becoming less and less safe for us to be here. Uh, things are starting to heat up as far as conflict-wise between different uh, uh, warring factions. And uh, this was before the, the massive cholera outbreak and all the, the other humanitarian crises that, that followed. But he was telling me how difficult it was not only just to share the gospel, but just to connect with his neighbors. And he said, J.D., there, there may come a time really soon that, that we're going to have to evacuate the country. Fast forward, and I am sitting in a Yemeni mosque for an hour and a half, and there are seven men uh, surrounding myself and my host and two other brothers that were with us, uh, three little Yemeni boys standing behind their father, their father's. And uh, for an hour and a half, one evening, we are sitting there sharing the gospel of Christ with these, with these men and these boys who probably never heard this. And the, the little boys had these wide eyes, you know, what are these, what are these white guys doing here in, in our mosque? And for an hour and a half, we're sharing the gospel with them, and they're asking questions about Jesus. And they're sharing about Islam with us, and we're asking questions about their faith. And, and so for an hour and a half, we're discussing back and forth and having, having this wonderful conversation. And, and it becomes about 8.30 in the evening, and it's time for, for, the, for the, the boys to go home because they have school the next day. And so we get up to, to stand and, and walk out, and we're thanking uh, the, the men that hosted us there in this, this Yemeni mosque. And, and one of the men comes over to me dressed in his full Middle Eastern attire and had his beard dyed with henna because he, he made the pilgrimage. And he comes over to me and through broken English says at 8.30 at night, having only known me for an hour and a half and knowing that we completely disagree with one another on matters related to who this Jesus is, and through broken English he says, you come to my house for dinner? And I couldn't help but think, wow, how, how easy, how easy was that to, to be able to have this, this, this hour and a half conversation with these Yemeni men and, the, and their sons and, and be invited into the home of someone who, 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 who wants to hear more and have ongoing conversation and yet just a short time before this event... I'm talking to a missionary who is probably going to have to evacuate the country and is having a hard time even connecting with his Yemeni neighbors. Oh, I'm sorry, I left out an important part of that story. And that is, the Yemeni mosque in which I was sitting was not in Yemen. It was in Detroit. How far is Detroit from here? You see, we, we live at a time in history whereby what we're seeing is across the world... Sorry, my clickers are getting ahead of me there. There we go. We're living in a time in history whereby across the world there, there are massive, massive waves of people that are migrating all over the world. Now, it's not like migration just started and it just happened. It's, it's as old as the garden when, when Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and then they, they're actually kicked out of the garden because of their sinfulness. Migration has always been happening, but, but something has been happening with globalization, with technology and advancements that are taking place, that, that travel is happening at a rate that we haven't seen and the waves of people that are migrating are happening at an unprecedented rate. About 3% of the world's population right now lives outside of its 
country of birth. That's about 244 million. If that was one single country, it would be the fifth largest country in the world. Now, when we begin to think about this issue, about what is God doing in the world today, there's a disclaimer that I want to make at the beginning of this time. And that is, while we're talking and thinking about God being on the move and how He is orchestrating the movement of the nations... Uh, we know that in our country and throughout other countries in the Western world, there, there's a great amount of political discussion happening over this issue. Uh, turn on the news every day, it's taking place. Th- there's a great amount of, of ethical questions that are being asked at this point in time. And, and I'm not opposed to those discussions. We need to be having those conversations, but that's not where I'm going this morning. Where I'm going this morning is in light of what we see in Acts 17, verse 26 and 27. And that is, what happens if one day we wake up and we realize that people from other nations all over the world are living in our backyard? That they're already here. How now should we, as followers of Jesus, live in light of that reality? That's where I'm going this morning. And so I want to invite you to look with me at these two passages of Scripture as we think about this issue of God being on the move, moving the nations. And so here's where Paul picks up in the middle of this sermon, and he says in verse 26, and he, talking about God, he made from one man, that being Adam, obviously Adam and Eve, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Now, there are three things that I want us to see from this passage of Scripture that talk about this God that we serve, and then I want us to see one practical implication, sort of a so what that comes out of that. So the first thing I want us to see from this passage is that God is sovereign over people's creation. God is sovereign over people's creation, and He, God, made from one man every nation to live on the face of the earth, that all of us are here because of a great creator. All of us are here because we are created in the image of God. God uh, created Adam and Eve, and from them we are a part of that reality. So God is sovereign over His creation. The second thing I want us to see from this text of Scripture is God is not only sovereign over creation, but God is also sovereign over the histories of people. His histories of people. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods. In other words, the historical epochs in which people will live, the times in which nations will rise and which nations will fall, the times of when the Assyrians will come onto the scene, the times when the Babylonians will come onto the scene, the Egyptians, and so on and so forth. In other words, God's not only sovereign over people being created... He's also sovereign over people's periods or histories, the time in which they will live and move and have their being. But then there's a third thing that I want us to see from this passage of Scripture, and it is that God is sovereign over the habitations of people. In other words, where they will live, where they will exist, where they will have their being. So he's made from one man every nation of mankind to dwell on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, where they will live, where they will experience life, where they will experience their existence in this time that they have on planet Earth. 
Now, all of this leads up to an issue with the Apostle Paul, and it, it carries out into verse 27 as sort of this so what? So, so what that God is sovereign over all of creation? So what that God is sovereign over when people will live on planet Earth? And so what God is sovereign over where they will live? And it comes to verse 27, and here it is. So in verse 27, we get this. Why? Verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. God is the divine maestro orchestrating the movements of the nations on the planet that they might come to know Him. He always has been, and He continues to be this day. And so what we see is that through the, through the push-pull factors, what sociologists and anthropologists refer to as push-pull factors, I believe what we see in the Scripture is that God is this so- sovereign maestro that's working behind the scenes. So people will be pushed out of a country because of conflict, or they'll be pushed out of a country because of poor economics, or they'll be pushed out of a country for for a desire to take care of their children. And and so they're being pushed out, and then other parts of the world are being pulled to places where they can find employment, where they can find safety, where they can find security. And so regardless of those sociological and anthropological factors, you look at a passage like this and you realize that God is the one who is working through all of this. And while he desires people's security and he desires people to be able to have have good health and he desires to have people in places where they can eat at night and for protection, the reality is also he desires for them to come to know him. And so what happens as followers of Jesus when one day we wake up and we realize that some of the world's unreached people groups now live in our backyard. How now should we, as followers of Jesus, live in light of a passage such as Acts chapter 17? If we know that our God is this divine maestro orchestrating the movement of the nations. I want to also share with you, if my clicker will click here this morning, I want to share with you a story about Samuel and Young Cho. So Samuel and Young Cho are are a Korean couple. They They retired, they moved to the United States, and they moved to Baltimore. And while they're in Baltimore, they're at a restaurant one day, and their server is from Nepal. And while she is attending to them in this restaurant, they're praying for an opportunity that the Lord would give to them, that they may be able to connect with her and share the gospel with her. And so, to make a long story short, the Lord opens up this opportunity, and this, this server says to them, would you be willing to come to my house and share with myself and share with my family about this Jesus you're talking about. It was very much like a Lydia in Acts chapter 16. And so Samuel and Young, they go to their home, and here's the whole household gathered there, the extended family, and they begin to share Christ with them, and this entire Nepalese family comes to faith in Christ. And they plant a church in this this apartment. And they begin to teach them what it means to be obedient to Jesus. And as they begin to teach them, you can't go far at all to know that, hey, we've got to go and make disciples of all nations. And so you have this young church saying to Samuel and his wife, we have family and friends back in Nepal that need to hear this message. Can we organize a trip to go to them and connect with them and share this message of hope with them? And so what you have is this young congregation organizing this first mission trip, and they travel into Nepal, and they go back. They're only working among the social networks of the family there in Baltimore. 
And so they travel back into Nepal. They do this twice over a period of two years. And here's what happens. In a period of two years, only working through social networks of the people that have moved to Baltimore, they end up sharing the gospel with a large number of people, and they see 300 Bhutanese come to faith. They see 200 Nepalese come to faith. They see 35 South Asian Indians come to faith. And they end up planting three churches in Nepal. Amen. Amen. How, how does that happen? How does, how does that happen that, that, that a couple from Korea migrate to the United States and, and, and a refugee from Nepal comes to the United States and they meet up in Baltimore and they work through the social networks of, of those who are from Nepal to go back into Nepal and they plant churches in Nepal that are now reaching across that part of Asia. How does that happen? Do, do we see the possibilities? Do we see the, the opportunities that exist? Do we see the reality in which we find ourselves in, in the world today that the Lord has before us? I want to show you a slide here. And I don't want you to get overwhelmed with the numbers, but, but those of you that like numbers, you statisticians out there, you're going to like this slide. But for the rest of you, you're going to be like, whoa, that's just way too much. The point behind this slide is, is I want you to see something about the opportunity that we have where we live right now in the world. And that is... This is a slide of the top immigrant-receiving nations in all of the world. And you can see who is number one on the list. The United States, on any given year, and we've done, and this has happened for years, we have received 20% of the world's international migrant population for, for many, many years. There's no one who even comes close to number two, or comes close to number one. Uh, Russia and, uh, and Germany come in at number two. They receive about 6% of the international migrant population. But the United States receives about 20% on any given year of people migrating to, to the states. And you can see these countries that are here, and many of these countries are Western countries. So you've got France and Spain and Australia. You've got the, the UK, Germany. W what am I saying here? At least for right now, at this point in history, in these countries where most of the world's peoples are starting to pull toward and move toward, at least for right now, you can still walk across the road and you can knock on a door or you can connect with people in a park and you can share the gospel freely and openly. And the question is, do we, do we see the opportunities that are before us? Do we see what is set before us in light of these, these realities? Now, something else I want us to take a look at this morning. I need a longer arm. There we go. I want to talk to you about this notion of people groups and unreached people groups. And I'm sure you've probably heard of this concept before, but, but for the sake of, of where, where we are this morning, I want to mention it again. So the world has 7.5 billion people on planet Earth, 7.5 billion people. So sociologists and anthropologists have divided that 7.5 billion people along social lines and linguistic lines and, and various cultural expressions into what they call people groups. And so we're looking at a world that can be divided up in about 11,500 different ways according to those categories. All of us in this room fit into one of those 11,500 people groups. Out of those 11,500 people groups, there are about 6,800 of those people groups that are considered unreached people groups. Unreached is, is, a, is a category that basically, by definition, less than 2% are, have turned from their sin and placed their faith in Jesus. Uh, the technical definition would be less than 2% are evangelical. And so that is what we mean. 6,800 people groups in the world that make up an enormous amount of the population of the planet. Five billion people on the planet have no relationship with Christ. Three billion people on the planet have never even heard of the name of Jesus. So we're talking about a large number of people in those 6,800 people groups that are considered unreached. 
And so what we've done over the years is we've developed these maps that have these nice color schemes on them to help us get a visual of the world around us. And I know the colors are, are a little bit uh, difficult to understand here, but the darker the colors, or the, if, the red, if you will, those are areas that are considered more unreached, and the areas that tend to be green or lighter in color tend to be more reached with the gospel. So the darker the, the, darker the color or the red that is there, the greater the amount of lostness, the, the lighter the color or the, green, the, the, the darker the green, uh, areas are where there are less... Uh, needs for the gospel being proclaimed because there's so many followers of Jesus. And while I love these maps and while they're helpful, these maps do what I call the 35,000-foot perspective. And that is, they, they teach church members and they teach church leaders and they teach mission agencies to fly over and look down at 35,000 feet. And so when you fly over a city looking down at 35,000 feet, you can tell things like, oh... Um, that looks like uh, the highway system, and over here that looks like maybe that's the industrial park, and oh, that's probably the, uh, the center of the city. But you really can't see details until you drop from 35,000 feet maybe down to 12,000 feet. And then, oh, I see, that's a baseball diamond down there. Oh, and, oh I see over there, that, that's, that's very much a, a subdivision. And so what these maps do is they give us this 35,000-foot perspective, but they don't give us re- reality that's more down on the ground level. So what do they not show us? Well, you look at the United States, and it's very green. But what you find is that Nashville, Tennessee, is home to the largest Kurdish population in the country. 13,000 Kurds and not one follower of Jesus. You have uh, the Bay Area in in, in California, Fremont, Oakland, San Francisco, the largest Afghan population of about 60,000 to 70,000 Afghans living there. And, and, And you don't see any red dots on the map. You don't see red showing up on, on Minneapolis or in Seattle, Washington, where the largest Somali populations are in the United States, 100,000 in, in, uh, in Minneapolis. You don't see the largest, uh, Af- or, excuse me, the largest Arab Muslim population showing up in Detroit, Michigan, in the metro Detroit area on maps like this. So you don't get those realities. You don't get the reality of, of a red place showing up in Montgomery, Alabama. Until recently... There was a people group that lived in Mexico called the Miztec. They did not speak Spanish. They spoke an indigenous dialect, an indigenous language. And they were believed to only be there in Mexico until just a few years ago they were discovered living and working in Montgomery, Alabama. One of the least reached people groups in all of North America living in Alabama. You don't see that on these maps. So while they're helpful, they give us this this high-altitude perspective that is way up there. All right, so let me show you this slide here. This slide represents the number of the top countries in the world for unreached people groups. India comes in at number one, and China comes in at number two. But look at this, and here's a story that most of us have never heard until this morning. The United States is home to the third largest number of unreached people groups in all the world. We come in at just under 300 people groups. Now, sure, they're smaller in size, but the reality is is that there are almost 300 unreached people groups in the U.S. making this country the third largest number of unreached people groups in the world. And Canada comes in. Look at this. Canada comes in at number six. So in North America, you have two of the top receiving countries in the world when it comes to unreached people groups. But then there's another category that I want us to mention this morning before we wrap things up, and that is the statement of unengaged, unreached. And that is, okay, of all these unreached people groups, 
Are there some where there is no evangelical churches engaging them with a church planning strategy? And the answer is yes. That of those 6,800 people groups on the planet, are there some that nobody's engaging? No one's seeking to reach them with the gospel and plant churches among them. And the answer is yes. And so we call them the unengaged unreached. And sound people, you may have to help me to advance that. There we go. Thank you. And what we find is that we live in a world where there are about 3,100 of those 6,800 people groups that no one is engaging with the gospel. So 3,100 people groups, no one's engaging right now with the gospel. But then the question becomes, well, what about in our backyard? Because if we know that we're a country that's home to the third largest number of unreached people groups, what about those? Are there, are there people groups that are unreached that no one's engaging? And the answer is yes, they're are many. 207 of those 280-plus people groups that are unreached living in the United States, 207 have no evangelical church in the United States seeking to engage them with the gospel and plant churches among them. 207. In Canada, 141 have no one seeking to engage them with the gospel. And again, these are in places where we can walk freely across the street. We can invite people freely in our homes. We can have these conversations. We can share with them about what it means to be a follower of Christ. But the other thing that I want us to see... All right, sound people, you're going to have to help me out back there. There we go. Let's talk about international students for a second. The last time I checked, there's a college or two here in Boston. You probably got five or six international students studying here. I'm just guessing. I don't know. You know, I'm just, I'm just a foreigner here in the strange land listening to people with a strange accent. But international students. I mean, the United States is home to over a million international students. And these are the countries that are the top sending countries of international students to study at the United, in the United States. China, India. Are there any unreached people groups living in those countries? Um, uh, Saudi Arabia, any unreached people groups living in Saudi Arabia, Vietnam, Taiwan. And you can see, now clearly, there are believers in these countries. We talked about that last night. But there are large numbers of unreached people groups in these countries that are coming to the U.S. to study. So what do you do with Starbucks drinking Saudis that like to drink coffee in Birmingham, Alabama? So one of our church members, a guy named Gary, was one day sitting in, in a Starbucks in Birmingham, and he was praying for an opportunity to go to Saudi Arabia to share the gospel. And he's, he's reading his Bible, and he's reading about Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and, and Peter's encounter. And he looks up, and he looks across the room, and he sees these, these college students. Gary's a college student. He sees these college students across the room, and, and they, from, his from his description of the situation, they, they, they had a Middle Eastern complexion. And he thought, you know, do, do I trust God enough to give me faith to go to the Middle East? Do I trust God enough to give me faith to walk across this room in Starbucks? And so he prays and he walks over and he, he sees these guys and they're studying. And he's a student as well. And he says, hey, are you, you all students? And they said, yes. And he said, well, I'm a student too. I'm in architecture. And, and uh, I, I noticed you're all over here studying. And, you know, what, what, what's your name? And, and four guys. And person one says, my name's Muhammad. And person number two says, my name's Muhammad. And person number three says, my name's Muhammad. And the first person says, I think it was Joe. Joe. And... Um, <laughs> No joke, no joke. And so Gary begins to talk with these guys, and he says, well, you, are you here studying? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're study, students here in Alabama. And Gary says, well, well, what country were you born in? And all of them said, we're born in Saudi Arabia. And that started a relationship with these students that lasted for about six months. And Gary was sharing with them about the gospel, and they were having conversations, and they were talking to him about, about Islam. And they would hang out at Starbucks until it closed, and they would sit outside, they would drink coffee for another couple of hours, and then they would, they would play soccer together, they were cooking together, they were going to movies together, they were hanging out together. And finally one day, one of the Muhammad students came to him, and they said, Gary, 
if, if this Jesus is really who you say he is, I want to follow him. And Gary said, Muhammad, do you recognize, do you understand what that could potentially mean for you when you return home? And he said, if Jesus is really the way, the truth, and the life, as you say that he is, I'm willing to die for him. And then he makes this statement. He says, Gary, you've been so nice to me and to my friends. You have shared hospitality with us. I would like to return the favor. Would you be willing to come for a couple weeks this summer and just spend time with me and my family in Saudi Arabia and let me be your host and you can meet my friends? Immediately, Gary becomes an insider. He's not trying to look for ways to be able to, oh, how am I going to figure it out? It's just natural. It just happens. You see the possibility, the potential. Gary, and actually, Gary actually was baptized in this, in this time when he, he was meeting with these guys, and he invited them to come to his baptism, and because they, were, they weren't so time-conscious like we are often in the West, but more relational-conscious, he's getting baptized, he's back behind the stage, and he's got his gown on and everything, and he looks out, and he doesn't see them in the audience, and so he looks at his, his watch, and he's about to be baptized, he sends these guys a text, and they write him back, and they say, oh yeah, we're going to be there, we're down here at Starbucks drinking coffee. You know, it's like 15 minutes into the worship gathering. So they show up. Gary's already been baptized. They missed the baptism. They show up. It's the first time they've ever been in a Christian worship gathering. They show up. They sit through the rest of the, of the time. And they come up to Gary afterwards and they apologize. They say, Gary, we are so, so sorry. The next time you get baptized, let us know. We'll be on time. <laughs> Refugees. Making the news all the time. What do we see right now in the United States? Um, and the, these numbers are um, a couple years old. But the countries that we see, Burma, Iraq, Somalia, uh, Bhutan, just go on and on and on down, down the list. Uh, we have people that are the, the, the neediest of the neediest, the people that are going through some incredible, incredible hardships that, that are living here in, in, in our midst that fall into that category. Church, here's what I'm asking you to think about. In light of this passage of Scripture, what is our response? How, how should we live in light of, of a passage like Acts chapter 17 that, that God has, has allowed us the opportunity to hear this message of hope, this message of good news? You see, we're all here in North America as a result of migration. Even if, even if you're Native American, there was a time when, when your, your ancestors migrated to North America. We're all here through that process of God being this divine maestro orchestrating the movement of the nations. And as a result of that, everyone in this room, including myself, we came to faith as a result of a time where somewhere along the way, people moved into our neighborhood to share this gospel with us. They moved into our neighborhood and they planted a church and maybe it was 50 years later, it was through the ministry of that church that I heard the gospel and came to faith. But the reality is, is that God is orchestrating the movement of people into the community to share the gospel and He's orchestrating the movement of nations to particular places on the planet that they might come to know Him. And so I don't know how this is practically going to look in your metro Boston area, but you can see how the implications are huge. There is something that is, that is wrong with our understanding of missions. If we are willing to sacrifice great expenses, great amounts of time, great amounts of even health, to get on a plane and fly across the Pacific Ocean at 35,000 feet to try to reach an unreached people group, when halfway across the Pacific, someone from that unreached people group passes us in another plane and they land in Boston and they move across the street to us and we're not even willing to walk across the street and share the gospel with them. There's something messed up 
about our understanding of missions if we're not willing to go across the street. I want to make this disclaimer. The greatest needs, please hear me on this, the greatest need, the greatest urgency right now is outside of North America. The greatest spiritual needs are outside of North America. The greatest physical needs are outside of North America. So I'm not saying, hey, hey there's, this, there's sort of this equal balance that's here. Absolutely not. We as a church and the churches that I've been a part of leading is greatest needs outside. Continue to give and pray and go and make that highest priority going outside of North America. But at the same time, in light of this passage, now how do we live in the reality of if we don't think about, God, what are you doing in my own neighborhood? So I, I, want, I want to lead us in prayer, and I want us to think about, God, how would you have me to, to live? Because we're going to have to be intentional about this. If I have to be intentional about just sharing the, the gospel with people that look like me, smell like me, sound like me, talk like me, how much more so am I going to have to be intentional with people that are radically different, culturally speaking, than me? We're going to have to be, we're going to have to be humble learners. We're going, to, we're going to make mistakes along the way when we seek to engage people with the gospel. You know, in, in the South, we love hospitality. And we love barbecue. And we love to be able to have all these, these pork barbecues. And so when my, when my Muslim neighbors are next door and I say, hey, come on over, I'm going to have a barbecue and welcome you to the neighborhood, and they get offended, uh, I have to realize, oh, wait a minute, maybe there's some cultural things I need to learn that they aren't very keen on eating pork. And so we're going to learn, we're going to make mistakes, folks. We're going we're to we're we're stumble around, but that's okay. That's all right. The question is, are we being intentional? Are we seeking, Lord, lead us in the way you want us to go to be able to connect with the people around us, that we could share your love, teach us what we need to learn, and, and go with us, give us the grace. And so I hope and I pray that this will become a part of your vision and what you're doing, because here's the thing. What if part of the way that you're reaching into other parts of the world. Not the only way. What if part of the way that you reach into other parts of the world is through the social networks of the people you're reaching here in the metro Boston area? Because you can plant churches in Nepal. You can plant churches in North Africa. You can plant churches in Saudi through that. It's not the only way. Still sending directly, still going, still partnering with others. But what if you think about, hey, what's the social networks that we can share this gospel across? Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus we, we realize that, Lord, you, you have saved us as a result of your grace and your mercy, and we're so, so thankful for that. And we, we ask for forgiveness of our, our, of our shortcomings. Lord, we, we realize that, that there was a time in history whereby it, it, it took you moving your people to allow the gospel to, to come to our ears. And so, Lord, we want to be a people that that process continues with until Jesus comes back. And so, Lord, as we thought last night about you being on the move and how you're, you're sending us to the nations in other parts of the world, Lord, we want to be sensitive and open to your spirit, and we want to realize that you're the divine maestro orchestrating the movement of nations into our backyard orchestrating the movement of some of the world's unreached people groups, some of the world's unengaged, unreached people groups to Boston. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, great commission glasses to wear as we walk the streets and as we go to school and as we're in the neighborhoods and in our places of business, as we're playing and hanging out. Lord, give us, give us your eyes. And we pray that we would have great sensitivity to your spirit and that, Father, you would guide our conversations and our interactions. You would guide our encounters with others. 
that we may be able to show your word in our actions of love toward others. We may be able to share your word in the language that we share with the gospel message, filling it. We may be able to serve the nations living here among us. So God, we give all this to you and pray that you would be the one that receives the glory and that we may have the honor of partnering with you to be about fulfilling that vision that God allowed John to see in the book of Revelation. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.